Hi, I'm JT White, author, digital native, and product person, obsessed with trying to find out how to make digital products and the people that make them the best we possibly can. This is Build for Better. My guest today is Nick Childs, the co-founder of DIRT, consumer insights research platform leveraging neuroscientific principles to measure human emotion and revolutionize the bond between creators and audiences. Before that, he's held leadership positions at WPP, Omnicom, and IPG. He's made everything from Super Bowl winning campaigns to films that have been awarded at Sundance, South by Southwest, and beyond. He's also helped design immersive narrative experiences that have premiered at Sundance and Tribeca, and wrote and helped design an AR-driven off-Broadway play, The Raven, based on the life and writing of Edgar Allan Poe that opened in partnership with the New York Film Festival. More importantly, he's one of the kindest, most thoughtful, insightful people I've ever had the privilege to be around. This is Nick Childs on Storytelling. My question for you really is just how storytelling is a part of, of you building things. I will begin by saying I have a really tricky relationship with the word storytelling. Perfect. And I love it when you use it because I hear you, to sound pompous, giving me that word and putting me in the space of being a storyteller. But when I try to use it myself and the journey I'm on to kind of truly believe that I'm an artist and a creator and all these things and allow myself that. I remember, I don't know if you heard this a few years ago when Stefan Sagmeister made this comment about storytelling and he was talking specifically about the, the marketing world and in general, people like Instagram influencers and reality TV stars who were suddenly calling themselves storytellers, right? And he had this great quote. He said, an interview with someone, he had heard an interview with somebody who designs roller coasters and he referred to himself in that interview, this person as a storyteller. And Sagmeister said, no, fuckhead, you're not a storyteller. You're a roller coaster designer, right? And then he went on to add that um, people who actually tell stories, meaning people who write novels and make feature films, don't see themselves as storytellers. And I think that there's some truth to that, right? That the word storytellers has gotten a little bit highfalutin, um, a little bit self-involved, right? But you and I have been talking about this over the past few years. Um, about tilting towards optimism, right? And I'm pushing for optimism in my life and supporting people, other people, instead of undercutting them and telling them what they can't be. So I'm all about trying to give others the space and the platform to be what they want to become full stop. So instead of being bitter about the word storytellers, I'm trying to embrace it and and talk about it from the point of view that you bring up, that that storytelling can be incredible when it's done right. And, and I think that's the key. When storytelling is done with intention and confidence and love, and I think when we do that, storytelling becomes magical, right? These are big words, but it becomes magical to me and even spiritual, less in the sense of being religious and more in the idea of it being wonderfully overwhelming. Like it just moves you right. And I think the practice of the craft of storytelling leads ultimately for me to this place of grace and beauty and, and these big words. Um, so the other day I woke up and for some reason, this statement was literally going through my head from some dream I'd had. And the statement was, try to use your anger to inspire instead of enrage you. Try to use your anger to inspire instead of enrage you. And so that's what I'm trying to do now. Instead of being pissed off about things or negative about things, I want to talk about inspiration and inspirational storytelling. Um, so, so I'll embrace it and I'll, I'll fully accept that word. But I do think it's, it's tricky language. I think we have to be clear what we mean when something gets as big and grand as the word storyteller suddenly you have an audience who's sitting in front of you and they're expecting something big out of you. And, and maybe we'll get to this later, but the challenge I have is that sometimes pushes one to want to be perfect and want to have the perfect crafted story. And, and where I am now on my journey in life is to try to put more things out there that might not be as good rather than to put one out th thing out there that I think is great because I, I think ultimately that's the recipe for failure there's so much I want to respond to immediately. So this is awesome. This is exactly what I want. Okay. So I think what's important on my side is let me, 
let me say what storytelling means to me and why I call you a storyteller, because maybe that'll give context, not just for you, but for the audience too. So I think of storytelling, so it's an art, right? And, and when I think of storytelling from the product lens, I, a lot of the time, I think you can look at what I call evolutionary products and see their story, right? So there is a story in the way things get built, right? It originally was supposed to, Instagram was supposed to be for beverages. And then it turned into this other thing because they realized that it actually was about pictures and people like pictures. And then it tur- you see that evolution, right? So like there, there's a part of me that thinks of storytelling in that vein, right? Which is like how a thing grows and, and being able to see the full story and the full picture. When I think of you as a storyteller, I think of you as a storyteller, and I do mean it in the, as the highest compliment because I was introduced to you as a storyteller, right? The first, I, I saw you speak. That's how we first met. Uh, we were speaking at an event together and I was taken aback by the way you told your story. But then also I became more familiar with your work. And, and to me, um, and maybe this is trite, and I, I don't mean to make it sound that way. And I, I think language is important, so I agree with you. But there is something really beautiful about, you said the word intention. There feels like great intentionality in the way that you put things together, even small things that I've seen you produce and big things that you've created. And, and that's a thing I'm very interested in talking to you about today, right, is the intention behind whatever your production is and, and how that intention shapes the output. Because then at the end, you sort of talked about output, right? In this chase of perfection. And so, so where are you landing now on how you define your intention? Um, now and in the past years, um, I, bel- I think that my intention is much more focused around freeing myself from the what we talked about, the shackles of perfection and my intention, which again, feels like a big word, um, comes from a place of trying to put a couple of steps together that will get me to the next one, or even one step that will get me to the next one, rather than sitting down and attempting to figure out all of the ways that I need to move in order to get to my destination. I I know fundamentally from my own long life now that things are not going to go according to plan. So I'm reluctant and and perhaps um, I procrastinate or I'm lazy and I don't want to do the hard work of putting down the outline of my life and where I'm going next. But I But I also have found that the more I sit down and try to be strategic about what I'm doing, without letting it overwhelm and become a process, um, the more I'm able to take those first next steps and, and gu- guide myself towards something that's interesting. And, and I guess release the idea of whatever it, this thing will become. So when you talk about a product, trying to get to the next iteration of the next stage in a beta version or a release version is way more fascinating to me now than spending months and months or years of your life talking about the perfect jewel-like object that's going to exist at the end. Um, I think once I've opened my mind to the process being tiny incremental 1% steps that can phenomenally and drastically impact and change your life. That's how it happens. It's not a a sea change that suddenly happens and and your life's in a totally different direction. Uh, For me, it's forcing myself and allowing myself to take the tiny, tiny steps forward that ultimately mean months or years down the line, you've made a major shift, but it's hard to see it in the moment. so I, I like what you're talking about with intent, but I think about intent as the seeds that get planted for the ultimate growth, right? The intent to have a forest is to start planting a lot of little trees, right? That, that forest, especially in that analogy, you're not going to see the beauty of that forest even in your lifetime, right? right? So to, to expect one perfect tree to grow, that's not what I'm interested in right now. It's, it's so interesting because I think that this plays a lot into like this idea of the digital shift, right? So what I mean by that is 
when you think about how like people build things just in general, right? Like, so it started with things like waterfall and, it, and what that really meant was you had this concept of like, we need to do this and these are the steps and this will be what happens in the end. Right. And then we sort of moved into agile philosophy, which is like a little bit more agility, but that was a poorly named process in my opinion, because mm -hmm. it's not actually mm -hmm. agile. It's just like, there's a couple degrees left and right you can move to, but it's still kind of rigorous. And now we live in this world of like truly continuous improvement. Like, and by continuous improvement, I mean like by the hour, right? Where companies and right. products, and I think most interestingly, people can take input back in real time and make an immediate assessment of themselves or their organization or their product and go, oh shit, <laughs> like this is, this is wrong. Or like, oh man, we didn't mean that, but cool. Holy shit. That's cool too. We should probably do that. That's neat. Right. And so I think the, it's what I'm kind of hearing and what I've been thinking about a lot personally is this idea that if your intention is to just keep making stuff better, that like you, like if that's your only North star is like to just do better work and make whatever you're working on better that day with the information that was given to you, that you sort of wind up in better places than holding a really strong opinion and line about the thing in the end, right? Which I hate to do the journey is the, is the point, but that's kind of, I think what I've been seeing a lot more. And I think a lot more people are embracing both like in life and in business. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I, I fundamentally believe the the journey is the point. Um, you know, one of my favorite poems is Ithaca by Kafavi and uh, a, a Greek poet. And it's all about that. Like if you're, if you don't pay attention to the journey while you're on it and it's all the means to the end, you're going to miss everything that happens in life. And, and while I think I'm nodding to you and saying, yeah, sure. That's a cliche. I think the more experience you get, the more you see, the way the journey matters. And for me coming from, as I know you do, a space of curiosity and embracing ignorance, right? Wonderfully saying, I don't know something. So how can I learn something new? I'm still able to learn something new and certainly be wrong about a lot of things in my life. And then take that input and try to make it so it doesn't negatively impact me and make me feel like I'm an idiot right. or going to be wrong in the future. How do I take that and put the pieces together in a unique way that, of course, continues to serve my own philosophy for a grand term of life, right? So I take these pieces, as I think you do, and especially when I'm wrong, I try to add them into the mix of all of the stuff that's playing around in my brain and come out the better side with something that has moved me again uh, forward as opposed to being stagnant. And, and I think that that's the gist of it for me ultimately is if I remain right, if I remain set in my ways, let's leave out the part that I'm probably wrong still and just <laughs> ignoring it. But what's the fun in that? Then I'm just sitting around reiterating all of the stuff that I think I knew before. Um, right. And then that circles back for me to be where I found my role in life and my work now. I, I'm, I'm at a place where I was invited in to co-found a company because I think the way I put pieces together and try to bring unexpected objects that I see as like-minded together to lead us forward is, um, is, is unique to embrace that. Um, and it's also what I love to do. So rather than be focused on one job, I used to be a, a, an executive creative director, a chief creative officer, or a director, uh, or a writer, I'm more interested now in finding like-minded people and ideas and putting them all together and seeing where that can go. Because I see and I'm so aware of all of the things I can't be, not only because of my background, but also because of where I am, where I'm at in my stage in life. There is just a lot of stuff that as you get older, you realize the limits of being able to explore everything, right? You don't get all the things. So there are other people out there who have the things that I love and want to put together that I don't know. And I think by putting them all together, we're going to make something amazing, right? That's what I love doing now. So it's much more like, I guess, for lack of a better term, like an executive producer role. Like you're not going to be the director. You're not going to be the writer. You're trying to get all these pieces together in a room because of the talent and the experience and the knowledge those people have and make something magic as opposed to being the person, for me at least, 
the person or the artist who's in complete control and it's my idea. And look, I think we're seeing it again, not to get too tangential, but recently with the bad billionaire boys behaving club of <laughs> this is my toy and I'm going to come in and completely pivot the platform or, or whatever that is into being what I think it should be. And I alone think it should be. And it's blowing these platforms up. These social media platforms are just blowing up because one person's taking the ball and going home. And that's not fun for me. It's more fun for me to let everybody play in the game. See, so that's so interesting. So I love, I love the executive producer analogy because I think that's actually, that's a really fun way to think of it to me, to bring it back to storytelling. Like to me, you're an architect though, right? Like you're still the architect of the full story, right? Which is that that's, that's the part that I think is the most interesting, right? Because when, listen, one of the hardest things that I've had to do as a human is realize how much I don't know and and continue to find out just how much I'm gonna not know, right? Which is like every day there's just more. Like one of my biggest fears is like if people ever saw my Google search history, it like just the amount of things I can't spell is tremendously embarrassing, let alone like the, the concepts that I just don't understand. But this idea of, of sitting up atop all of these other people in their space and helping them get to a single space, you know, not to make it back about the, the podcast, but like for me, like that's a lot of product, right? A lot of that really, and I, I hate the visionary construct because that's stupid and it's ego, right? Mm-hmm. But what, what it is mm-hmm. though, is it's the ability to hear the input from those people and make some sort of discerning decision around how to put the pieces together. It's not yes and no, it's always yes and or no but, right? Like it's gotta be one of those two things. And that's that's what I'm hearing. That's what I think of like an executive producer doing is, right? Is you've got all this stuff coming up to you and none of it's bad, just all of it doesn't maybe fit. And so you either need to make it fit or decide that it really doesn't fit and then make sure that that sort of like still happens and people still feel good about that. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, look, I'm a, a writer at heart I, and I love language and that's why I I try to be careful with words like storyteller. And I'm even careful when you say executive producer, because when I'm talking to your audience out there who may want to be in this space, executive, executive producer feels like it's about control, right? right? And it's about the visionary that you bring up and the person shaping it all and you bring it all to me and ultimately I'll have final cut or whatever you call it, you know, the final choice. To me, it's more about being a collaborator, a supporter. I fundamentally want to get to a place, if not, hopefully I'm getting to a place where this, the, the journey I'm on now in the kind of third of my life where I see the impact of giving back and I see the impact of inviting in others and letting them do their best work. And all of those things that can get dangerously cliched, I literally can see how beneficial that is to them, to the product, the project we're trying to contribute. And ultimately, here's the magic trick, to me selfishly, because it gives back to me in feeling and empathy and whatever you want to call it to watch those people rise. But it also gives back to me because the thing that I want to see created gets created. Right. (laughs) So all of the, the trick at the end of the day is when you finally hit that level where you are less ego driven, if you can balance it the right way and truly incorporate that into how you act and engage with people, you end up getting more back than you ever got by trying to drive things through your point of view only. So, so you brought up the, the bad boy billionaire club, which I don't want to get into the details of it because it's yeah. ultimately, I, I don't think it's that interesting. I think it's pretty boring to be honest. Like I think it's sort of like, yeah, of course that's what they're doing. Like, sure. Right. But it, it does bring up an interesting concept, right? So, so let's, let's get away from storyteller for a while and let's get to like facilitator right? Which I think is more of an approachable term of somebody who can sort of like take in lots of information and help people like decide what's right and what's wrong. How do you navigate or how have you seen navigated well and poorly um, diff- like differing opinions? So so let's just use Twitter as an example because it's, it's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So there's 
there's an argument to be made that trying to turn them into a business isn't a bad idea. <laughs> like just for lack of a better term. But then there's also, I think, this concept that has been, I don't know, widely spread that like it's like, oh, he's going to turn like it's a startup now because they're it, that's which also I think is trash. Like that's that that makes startups look like trash. Right. <laughs> like that's just like a, that's an egomaniac coming in and going like I'm the smartest person in the room. Do it this way. That's not someone facilitating. So like how how do you how do you sort of let both of those things exist? How do you let people who want to do a thing and have a very staunch opinion do it, but still facilitate it in such a way that they feel as though they're part of the larger picture without having a horse in a hospital? Um, fundamentally, okay, so I think the simple answer to that is you make space for everybody to have a voice, not just that person who has a specific point of view. You let them have it. And again, we're talking about collaborative environments, right? So whether that's um, an ad agency and you're running the creative department or you're making a movie um, or you're building a product with a lot of different disparate kind of talent in your team, that's a different thing than being... Um, a painter and going off and painting on your own or being a poet and doing it on your own. So I think that's, we're talking about kind of a form where there are a lot of voices that need to be heard and that's table stakes. We come in and as the facilitator, as the supporter, as the collaborator, as the leader, whatever word you want to pick, we are acknowledging or need to acknowledge that we want a lot of voices in that room to be heard. And I am trying to learn from people who come from different backgrounds than I do, what it means to be privileged, what it means to make space, what it means to listen, what it means to have empathy, what it means to realize that you're, uh, you know, a six, five, six, six white guy who's older going in the room, you are naturally going to get a platform. Don't overuse that platform to speak. So I'm trying to understand and learn better how to ensure that all of the talent in that room gets heard first and foremost. So if somebody has a very concrete point of view and is in a leadership position and wants to start making everybody else kind of march to their beat, we need to figure out ways to open that conversation up and include everybody else who's in the room and, and should have a voice. And, and that can be tricky, but I think um, it, it settles itself pretty quickly into whether or not those people um, who are single-minded and might not be able to get out of their own way will be able to grow and learn from others. And so I, I think the most important thing for me is to be able to find and facilitate a space where people can bring their ideas and then constantly through my own behavior and by offering up the ideas of others say nothing's locked, right? Nothing is taken, is, is the my way or the highway. We're going to constantly push at ideas. We're going to constantly push them forward. We're going to constantly question them. And that goes back to a lot of other ideas that, you know, we've already talked about that I think you have, I have to embrace to get there, which is just bringing up the point of view that ignorance is powerful, yeah. right? That scientists lead from a place of wait, when I know the answer, I'm done. So it's way more interesting to keep asking questions. And I think that's the place that you come from. And I'm learning better now in technology and plat building platforms and managing the development of products is kind of constantly be iterating and looking at ways that the product might be developing that are unexpected, but potentially more interesting than we originally intended. Yeah. So, so there's two things, I, two threads I want to pull on. So, so one is this idea of, of the room, which comes up a lot, right? I think people like, it, it's a thing that my whole life has been like, oh, you're in the room. You got to be in the room. You're in this room. And, and I think diversity in voices is so important. And I've recognized more, you know, and again, ignorance, right? Like there was just a lot of rooms that I really wanted to get in. And then I got in some of those rooms and I realized that it was just a bunch of dudes that looked like me, but older. And I was like, oh, gross, this sucks. Um, and then you're seeing what happens when there's true diversity in rooms and you go, oh, th this is a much more interesting conversation that, that turns out better output, whatever the output is, doesn't matter. Um, how do you go about outside of like doing what you're doing, which is starting your own thing, but like, how do you go about like raising your hand when you're in a room that doesn't have enough of that to begin with, to go, this room already isn't interesting. Like, are we in a space that you think we should start doing that? Like, does everybody have to raise your hand and go like, this room sucks? 
or <laughs> yeah, I mean, you fundamentally have to be open to rewiring your process all the time. And uh, a slight side tangent story, but the process for me was I worked with a team, um, uh, a production group to option a book for uh, television development. And uh, over the course of my career of looking at really cool crime-based projects that uh, I've wanted to option and turn into feature films and now television series, I probably, my kids would tell you, over-indexed on like a sheriff in a small town kind of idea, (laughs) right? That generally means a white male point of view kind of story, right? And the book that we ended up optioning together, I knew, we all knew would be more interesting if it were more diverse than the cast of characters was when the book was originally written 10 plus years ago. So opening myself up to say like, we're optioning it. I'm not going to be the showrunner. We need much more diversity in the room to enable us to tell the story that we wanted to tell. um, I had to change my process, which was, you're not going to write this thing. You're not the showrunner of this thing. Who can you bring in the room and empower them to tell a different story from their point of view? But again, back to what I was saying earlier, because selfishly, I wanted to make it a more interesting story. I think 10, 15 years ago, that would have been a fine story for where film and television was at the time, right? There, There weren't a lot of different things, but look at the world we're in now. I just, I'm more interested in talking to an audience that isn't me, that isn't older white guys. I am an older white guy. I might have the ability to come in and do something and and bring it to an audience that is that but like why why not hire those voices and that talent and again getting back to that um collaborator executive producer role that's what I get to do we get to pick the people we want in the room to force change to happen quicker and I think especially to draw it back to technology and products point of view, I want products to change the world faster than they would otherwise. So constant reinvention is supposed to be at the core of all of this. Constant reinvention needs new and different voices who are weird and unique and wonderful to come in and tell me we need to go in directions that I'm literally not going to be able to think about. I'm just, it's not going to come into my head. So if I want that, ultimately, if I want weird and wonderful and young and exuberant and from different walks of life, that ain't me. So <laughs> if I want to look in the mirror and go like, well, I wish it could become me, that's that's its own form of ignorance. Like that's just not going to happen, right? So I think that's getting back to egoless. Um, egoless makes it sound like, oh, that's wonderful. It's about me. I don't have any ego. That's It's literally egoless so that I get the thing that I want ultimately out of the process. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. The, 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 the part that ego plays in all of this is, is fascinating to me. It's one of those things as a product person in particular, like this is, this is probably not a beautiful thing about myself, but I have definitely seen products that I have out loud said, I'm like, oh, that's an ego-driven product. Where, mm-hmm. where you see the output, and and when I say product, I mean film. I mean, I mean anything. It could literally be anything. It could be a designer, like physically, like you know, clothing, anything. And I'm like, oh, that's a thing that was definitely driven by, like you, like this version of you that you've created for yourself. And I feel like as a, when you're building like teams and company, like that's such a dangerous place to start from. And, and also I've seen in my experience, like the hardest place to get out of, because once, once you're in that world, it's like, it's really hard to peel somebody off because then their identity is so closely bonded to whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And, and that's one of the things that I've, I've learned recently is like falling out of love with stuff you build. Right. And like being like, I've now been telling people to fall in like with whatever you create. Like, I I really like that concept of like, I I Mm -hmm. really like this thing. I don't want to love it. Like, it's okay Mm -hmm. because it's probably going to suck for some version of people (laughs) are probably going to take whatever you you did and be like, this sucks. (laughs) Like, you kind of have to be like, all right, cool, man. Like, that's neat. I like that feedback, too. Um, but the idea of, of like detaching your ego and not in some like weird spiritual way, but just like this idea of like having a comfortable distance from whatever it is that you make, I think is something that I don't observe 
in the traditional producty, specifically Silicon Valley sense of things, right? There's this like thread, I think, that sort of just already exists, which is like, you're supposed to, I don't know, eat, sleep and drink this only thing and you have to love it because if you don't, you won't succeed. And it's like, I don't know, that feels kind of off. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I'm at a place probably for the first time in my career where I so fully um, at the core of myself believe in what we're building that I can bring it to clients and um, creative people and audiences in a way that allows me to talk about what we're making um, with passion and belief. I'm not trying to hide some things that I know aren't really working behind the scenes. And and that allows me to connect with people because I really am bringing it to them as the audience who I want to see benefit mm. from this. I'm happy to be uh, the vendor to a client if I can help that client get to the next step of what they need to do better. And I believe we can do that. Like the platform we are building at Dirt, I fundamentally believe in the science. I think it makes a difference. And I think it is, um, it offers highly actionable insights into human emotion about anything we put in front of them that, that lets people, clients, makers better create things that the audience wants to experience more and more deeply. And I think that's a really lucky and wonderful place to find yourself. I love what we're building, but I don't love it because I'm uh, a co-founder who feels I have to love right. this and ram it down your throat, JT. Like, I don't believe you must use it. I'm much more that person who can go in a room and say, hey, here's what we're up to. Here's what we're building. Right now, we're not raising money in another round. I don't really need a ton of clients next year. I just want to talk to you about it. And if your time is valuable enough for me to have a cup of coffee or a lunch or a talk for 15, 20 minutes about this, and I'm not wasting your time, I'm good to have a conversation and see where it goes. And if it goes nowhere, that's really cool too, because I'm fundamentally coming from a place, not even just trying to come to a, from a place, I'm coming from a place where Ultimately, I want you to use it because you want to. I want to bring these things to you because they will change the nature of what you're making and creating for your audiences. Full stop, right? Yeah. They are. I think they're going to work that way. So if you don't want to do it, totally cool. Next conversation. Let's go to the next. I think that allows me to get away from what you're talking about, this ego-driven world of, oh, the thing I'm making so good because I'm not trying to put it in front of you to get your acc accolades. I'm trying to put it in front of you so you use it, realize how great it is, and you get something out of it. It's so I I love first of all, I love that for you, just because I think that's like such a great place to be in. And I, I also am so bullish on Gen Z and only mm. doing that and in, in like not going places where they're building stuff they don't care about. And I as a fringe millennial, like I saw it a little bit with my world, right? Like the younger mm. side of millennials, I think are a lot more prone to not building shit they wouldn't use. Like mm -hmm. I just, I, I've, I've seen people walk away from huge jobs that like people five, 10 years, my senior never in a million years, I think would have walked away from because they're just like, nah, you know, eh, it sucks. <laughs> they're just like, <laughs> that, it, that's so great. Cause it, I mean, I, I'm smiling cause that's where it all comes from. I mean, this is why I love, if somebody called me a strategically driven creative, I'm like, yeah, name a, to, from my perspective, name a truly creative person who's not taking the audience right. into account. <laughs> right. Like I just, I don't believe it. I, I, I believe it's a completely false supposition. It's, it's a, it's a false hypothesis. The creatives uh, are sitting somewhere alone in the room and they have a muse that lands on their shoulder and they tell them what to do and they only do what they want to do. Right. And this magical thing happens. I just know, you know, your audience and you, you use the tricks of your trade to tell your stories better to those audiences and engage them. And so that gets back to what you just said, like the, the fringe millennial to Gen Z groups that are now trying to put something in front of people, they want to have those audiences give them their time. 
And if you're not strategically thinking, what do these audience want to do with that time? And is this a valuable use of their time? And why would anybody want to use this thing? Then you're just delusional. And I, and I also find that those questions are pretty easy to ask at the beginning or constantly remind yourself of how our audience is going to use, how will this work? Will it, is something we're tweaking in the algorithm or in the platform going to actually make this better for people? Or are we just doing more work or am I doing something for me? And I think the more you ask, is it for the audience? Um, what are they getting out of it? The better you are. And you constantly have to check yourself. Like right now when we're talking, I have to think as I'm doing this, wait, wait a second. The fuck am I giving to the audience here? Am I giving them things? And they like in a minute or whatever, I want to, I, I want to talk about some storytellers that I want your audience to tap into and, and go check out online. And I think that's what it's about for me is constantly giving people something that regardless of me afterwards, they can take a journey and follow up on and probably get way more out of those links and explorations than they will out of my conversation and me blathering on. Well, I, I love you blathering just for the record, but that said, so the, see that to me is why I wanted to title your episode storyteller though, right. Mm -hmm. On storytelling, mm -hmm. because like that to me is a very storyteller's approach to this. <laughs> but, but it's how you capture attention. Right. And, and, and I want to bring this up because I think it's important because we started by talking about the lofty term storytellers. And I want to ground this for whoever's listening in, yeah, I fundamentally believe there is this um, spectrum of storytellers, right? But I think the spectrum's wide. And, and I, I want to mention some people that I want to put just off the top of my head uh, and, and thought about in preparation for this um, in context of, of being storytellers. And I think about, you know, just go look at the list of the poet laureates, right? Tracy K. Smith and Joy Harjo and Rita Dove and Ada Limon and go to poetryfoundation.org and check out some of those work, their work. Those are storytellers, right? I mean, they're poets, right? This is powerful stuff. But there's a guy named Chris Latre. Um, you can look up L-A-T-R-A-Y. Uh, the title of his blog is An Irritable Matisse. He's a member of the Little Shell tribe of Chippewa. And um, his newsletter that comes out every week is just this dose of like pure energy and inspiration every time it hits my inbox. He's a writer and a thinker and just you know, he's a storyteller or, or Jordan Peele. Uh, did you see Nope? Yeah. Have you seen Nope yet? Yeah. So I watched Nope and people say, did you like the movie? And I'm like, I'm not sure how to even answer that, but it's beautifully directed. The acting is phenomenal. So that's a combination of script writing and direction and acting talent, right? And the set design is stunning, but the story, the story itself just goes all over the place. And then somehow coalesces into a form that makes sense, um, whether or not you like it, that's a masterclass in storytelling, yeah. right? There's this artist I, I follow named Elsa Bleda, B-L-E-D-A, and she's a photographer. And with every single image that she makes, she's telling a story, right? But then there's a kind of move from artistic storytellers to storytellers who are doing something very discreet and distinctive. And I think about Heather Cox Richardson, who sends out a kind of politically based newsletter. And every day she's telling stories about the history of the United States in order to illustrate and define the dangerous impact that modern politics is having on us all right now. Right. So she's storytelling, but it's to a very different um, end result. And then you go crazy and you go like, well, who else are storytellers? Right. And you go Taylor Swift and Bad Bunny. I mean, they're not telling stories. Yeah. They, they're telling their own stories to literally millions of people who are avidly devoted fans. And then you go all the way in the other side of the spectrum and you kind of talk about marketing, right? And that's the space that I've been in, especially as we get to kind of advertising marketing, which was my background, and then now product, product fit and product marketing. And you think about people, there's a couple, um, I know David and Claire Hyatt who make Hyatt Denim. H-I-U-T uh, denim in Wales, and they want their genes to mean something. So everything they do is about the story and the craft of what they're building, but how it fits into a much bigger ecosystem in life. Um, in, in our work at Dirt, the artists and the business teams that we work with who want to make their video games more impactful, they're storytellers too. And then you go all the way down to incredible people like Stacey Abrams, right? Politician who's using narratives and stories to express 
deep and important ideas in a way that actually moves people to action, right? There's nothing more powerful than that. So all of these people are using storytelling in different ways, but at the core, it's how do they bring audiences in and how are they allowing the audiences to understand the stories in a way that they take it into their lives, but can also express it to other people, can carry the story forward, can carry that fire forward so that the story has much more power and meaning than it does in the one place where it initiated. So the thing that that sticks out to me the most there is, so there's a lot of different ways to tell stories, right? And I, I think that's like the, the thing for me that I wonder, and I'd love your opinion on is, I sometimes feel as though that a lot of people aren't as familiar with storytelling as an art form, right? And I feel like you can you can feel that in the things that they put out. So one of my favorite crafts is comedy. I think comedians yeah. are one of them. Like, I can't, I just can't with them. I can't. It's funny, actually, when you said earlier, you were talking about the journey is the, is the point. Pete Holmes has a great bit about how if you're miserable on the plane to Hawaii, the beach won't save you. Like, that's just like a really good way to sort of like, get a really complicated construct, right? Which is like the journey is the point. That's like a really fun way to like deliver that sort of message. And when I think about people creating companies that matter and products that matter, that's your goal, right? Your goal is to like give some something to people that makes their life better in some capacity. And so your story is with your audience and with your product. And I, I feel like the art of storytelling and the understanding of storytelling is, is like maybe missing as a core tenant of like just being a person in business, because a lot of times the storytelling that I hear, the most stuff that I see online is around success metrics or some mm -hmm. stupid made up number valuation or capital or whatever, as opposed to like impact and the way that it happened, right? Like the actual thing that occurred to get you to a place. How do we... Do we fix that? Like, can we fix that? Are you, are, do you think like the next generation is better at it? Like, is there a way to like make that a thing or am I just like sort of like wrong and, and it is there. It's just, I'm missing it. I, I think it's fundamentally there the way I come at it and I may be hearing this wrong. So, so correct me if I'm kind of off from where you're going with it, but I think we can look at metrics, success metrics. Um, whatever those are, whatever the ROI is of any given thing, whatever the downloads are, whatever the first time user experience is and did more people click it and download it and buy it or spend time again, we can look at all of that. But I think the answer to or the path that leads to that success is in the storytelling. So I'm going to use storytelling generally there, which is if the game is more interesting to play, whatever that is, more fun, more unique, more new, more people are going to download it. Right. If the film is fundamentally a better story, if the characters are deeper and richer, if it's beautifully made, if it moves me, more people are going to watch it. More people are going to talk about it and tell their friends to see it. And that's going to put butts in seats in maybe not theaters anymore, but <laughs> downloads and streaming. And right. if um, the music is authentic, let's go back to Bad Bunny or Taylor Swift and it connects with millions of people, you're going to get billions of downloads. Right. But that's going to be because the music's great, right? Whatever great means is the storytelling. That's the, the secret sauce that I think too many people think is magic. And when we get into trouble with um, the quants trying to qualify what art is to then replicate it. That's the danger. I think any time that you've created something that was successful, trying to replicate that success out of the ingredients that went into the first dish, but make something fundamentally different, or it, that's not going to work. Look, I, I cook a lot. I don't know if you, you do, right? I'm a huge there, cook. Yeah, yeah you're a huge cook, right? So I don't call myself a chef, but I think I'm no. a pretty good cook. So there's 15, 20, 30, 40 things I can make by rote that every single time. But if I want to make something different, I'm not going to use the same ingredients I use for a bolognese sauce and then try to make Thai chicken thighs. Right. You know, it's just not going to work. So I think understanding um, that there isn't a toolkit, a, a specific path you must follow in this quantified way that's going to lead to the success it, that's not how creativity works. I think um, creativity 
the trickiness is at the same time, there is this mysticism and mythique around creativity where, again, a few people have it and not everybody does. And I, I think I like the more general term of creativity of like literally to create. If you make something, you're creative in my world. And that could be you're the CEO or you're in the C-suite or you're on the board or you're a product manager or you're the designer or you're the artist of or you're the marketer of a video game. You're in the same pool to me. Um, you are a creatively driven person. And I'll go back quickly to um, your comment about architecture. My dad's an architect. And when I first got into advertising, I told him the position I had, which was in the creative department. Um, he kind of looked like I had two heads. And he said, what do you mean the creative department? And I was like, well, you know, there's different silos in advertising and I'm in the creative part of the field. And he's like, if we called a certain department in architecture, the creative part, they'd run us out of the room. Like, everybody's creative. Yeah. Everybody's doing the thing and building the building. Like, and I like thinking about it through that terms because for product, for architecture, for medicine, for education, they're as creative, more creative than some of the arts fields to me. Right. But we don't sit here and think there's a group of people in a discipline in those fields who gets to run the making of the thing. Right. We're all making it. We're all putting it out into the world. Yeah. Which also makes me think like the, the, the people that I think need storytelling the most is companies, right? Like I, I find that like, yeah. I, I really, and this isn't like a stab at marketers, by the way, like brand market, you're doing fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. But like, I, I do think this idea of specifically with this next incoming generation, like your story as a company, what your intention to go back to that, right? Like what you're trying to do as a company to me is very interesting. And how that story gets told is huge, right? Because it goes to your point, everyone's helping tell that story. It's your recruiters. It's your brand advertising. It's also the product that's actually in the world. It's what you're doing like with the people that are around. It's your glass door reviews. It's all these little things that all make up what, you know, ultimately is probably more of a narrative that other people get to create on your behalf based on what you put out in the universe. But, you know, thinking about like the people who are in charge of these places, like not thinking about everything you're doing as part of your larger story to me is a huge miss. And it doesn't feel like a lot of these folks are in touch with that, or they feel like they're too big to tell a story, which also feels like bullshit to me, but that might just be a personal thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I'll, I'll grab the mic and talk a little bit about our company through that lens, because especially in my role of growth and chief creative officer there and kind of marketing and how we put ourselves out into the world, Dirt is a biometric neuroscience platform, right? I mean, we are building a revolutionary way to measure human emotional connection through biometric sensors and measure audiences' attention, right? We're, we're using these sensors to do that. And all of that's very scientific and rigorous and way above my intelligence level, right? <laughs> but what interests me um, there and where my head goes as a storyteller is to ask things like, okay, how do I explain that in a colloquial way to people so they understand it if they don't have a PhD or they don't have a, a experience in customer marketing, right? And at the heart of it, our clients work with us because they're dying to know exactly what an audience thinks of what they're creating, right. what they're making. And we know. So our clients want to know what's in anybody's head when they engage with the thing they make we know what's in their head. And I wonder about things on my own as a storyteller, like how the platform we're making is going to be connected to our users' lives, how it's using it, literally using the sensor is going to impact their lives because built right, these sensors that you put on to engage with us, well, it sounds big, but they're going to have this almost totemic importance, right? Um, and by that, I mean using our device is going to matter emotionally to them. So how do we capitalize on that emotional resonance and create something truly groundbreaking? How do we push that story? And, and sometimes I think, am I getting too big? Will putting this sensor on you and having you engage with it multiple times a month or a week have this kind of totemic quality? And then I, you know, I'm holding it up right now. This little band, this little band of metal that I put around my finger, it's a wedding ring. 
I mean, there couldn't be something simpler that has more import in people's lives. Yeah. So we do this all the time. We take things and we wear them or we surround ourselves with them or we believe in them and they have these massive totemic imports in our lives. And that's where I'm going as a storytelling. Yes, we use biometric sensors to measure an audience's engagement in a consumer marketing way to make your products better. Absolutely. What we're really doing at the core is... Um, we know that what you make matters. We make sure it connects. That's it. That's our line, right? It's not, oh, we do biometric sensors and we engage the audience in measuring. It's like, no, what you make matters. We make sure it connects. That's it, full stop. In a world where people are fragmented and fractured and have a finite amount of time and interest and thing, all you want to do is make the thing you've created a little bit stickier, not in like a negative selly way, stickier. Like I want it to have its place in your life and I want you to enjoy that time and I want you to use that time well. We're coming in and we're helping people get input emotionally that's indisputable and say to them, we can help you make that engagement with your audience one, two, five, 10, 20% better. Don't you want to know the things you wanna work on to make it better? and the things you don't have to pay attention to anymore. So you can make better bets. And, and that's it at the end of the day. When you, when you can put it that way and it comes down to human needs, right? All these things we talk about in advertising, all that, that make this product that is a thing, make this platform that is a digital ecosystem, make it matter in people's lives, even if it's for a couple minutes a day or a month or whatever that is. Yeah, see that 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 just goes to show you how important storytelling is. Cause like that's the story. Like I, I work in AI right now, right? And like we yeah. are we're suffering from storytelling because it's it's either a neural net and it's terrifying and everybody's jobs are gonna go away and something like that, or it's not real because they've used bad AI before and they're thinking about Siri not being able to tell you what the weather is. Like they like there's not a there, there's not a middle ground. And I think a lot of I think a lot obviously about it because it's my, my everyday job, but I think a lot about like how it's been presented to people, and mm -hmm. and how first order objects were sent out in the world as products, and they're like it's this, and then people went this sucks, and people went shit, <laughs> <laughs> right? But yeah. then like ChatGPT like came out and people were losing their mind, and it's like well yeah, a lot of us knew that was coming, and we we've known that's where we're heading, but we didn't tell that story well. We didn't let you know that that was what was going to happen after Alexa and what happens after auto suggest. And like, you know what I mean? Like all these little incremental steps that never really got sold to people as to what it really was. And so now when the actual thing comes out, you know, people are, I think rightfully so super confused by it. They just don't, they don't know how to handle it. Yeah, they don't. And, and everybody over indexes on the impact that it's going to have. Agreed. right? And the impact that it is going to change creativity because suddenly nobody's going to have to write copy anymore, whether that copy is a poem, whether that's a wedding vow, whether that's you know a piece of advertising, that's just complete horseshit. What it is, is another tool for, for me, a first draft. So if I can say to uh, 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 some kind of AI chat, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. And it spits out three paragraphs that I can then go in and polish and recreate. Recreate. I come from a background way too many decades ago of being taught all writing is rewriting, yeah. right? So if you fundamentally believe that all um, writing is rewriting and all releasing is the next version of what you've built before, then you know that anything that these systems give us are just the first step to what you're then going to keep coming in and polish. Will they change people's roles artistically? Sure. Probably. But that's happening all the time, yeah. right? This happened in digital filmmaking and cameras were going to change the whole way. Like, no, it didn't change. It didn't change everything for people. It, it changes the tools and the input and the way you do your work, but it doesn't change the fact that you get to do the work. Yeah, my, my favorite version of that, because you're a film guy too, so like I can like, you know, if you fed, pick whatever, I'm not going to pick a certain company, pick any of these chat AIs and fed them every romantic, like rom-com script ever and said, make me a rom-com. Most rom-coms suck. So you're not going to get when Harry met Sally because that was yeah. special. So even right. if you have the whole universe, the whole database of, of human knowledge, a lot of it's not very good. <laughs> so, so you right. still right. need somebody to sit on top of it and go, oh, okay, so these are the bones of the story. Now I have to make it culturally relevant and I have to make it timely and all these other things that a machine's not going to get. And listen, someday, probably, probably not in our lifetime. Though. It's going to take a long time. Right, right. 
All right. So that said, I want to be respectful of your time, which means we have to get to our final question. So I, again, a film as a film person. So I don't know if you loved Inside the Actor Studio. It's one of my favorite things of all time with James Lipton. And Bernard Pivot yep. is this French journalist. I went to school for psychology. So this was my nod to that entire industry. Um, so I'm going to ask you some questions, which I did send in advance because I don't want anybody to feel on the spot because two or three of them could be gotchas. And that is not the intention yep. of this yep. podcast ever. Uh, the first one is a quote or a concept you love. Okay. So this one comes from a poet, a 15th century Indian poet named Kabir. And I found this as the epigraph in Mary Oliver's book, Blue Pastures, which I just recently picked up and I was giving to somebody and I opened it up and I wrote this down because before I gave the book away, I had to remember this quote from Kabir, which is, if you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? And that for me perfectly encapsulates what I'm trying to learn and live by that this is my shot, right? It's going to be amazing, but ultimately it's going to fail. One thing for sure, it's going to end. And so I want to do the best I can before the ghosts take over. Oh man, that's really beautiful. Okay. Uh, what about a quote or concept that you dislike? Okay. The first one that popped in my head was hustle yeah. and hustle culture. Because <laughs> <Yep. laughs> if you look it up and I brought this up before and I kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a soapbox for me. The first definition of the word hustle is to force someone to move unceremoniously in a specific direction. So you're pushing them to go where you want them to go. That doesn't sound great. And the second definition is even better. It's to swindle or cheat someone. So those are not good things, right? We need to stop celebrating hustle culture and we need to acknowledge that the people who are pushing it are pushing it for their own, I'll call it nefarious means, and that um, you're just on a journey. You don't have to hustle. You don't have to go slowly. You just need to be on it. Yeah. I, my answer is very similar to that, by the way. Uh, a job a job <laughs> other than your own you would love to have? Um, there are a ton of them, I think, because it goes back to what we were talking about often here, which is curiosity and a lot of putting different pieces together. So like finance or manufacturing or service industry of restaurants or hotels, I'm always kind of looking at things and seeing how wide open those fields can be um, and how you can bring your own talent to bear to make the path your own. So being unique and different and innovative in those places, I could see doing a lot of different things. But if I had to pick one role that I right now am fascinated by and I don't think exists or certainly exists for me, it would be finding a role in investing or helping finance support and scale incredible companies, some kind of private equity whisperer. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that's going to happen, but I like the idea of you know private equity firms that are investing in different areas and bringing my background and interest to bear in a way that might be unique in that field. Oh, that's fun. If, well, listen, if it doesn't exist, that's a hell of a business card. You should at least make the card. Um, <laughs> what about a job other than you, know, you would never want? I think I've had most of the jobs that I never <laughs> want. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm going to be general and not pick on any specific um, holding company agency or, or path that I've been on and say um, what I'm not interested in doing and would hate to be back on is being in a place that's not really giving me the runway to build something interesting and cool. Um, I'm spoiled by our company and where I am because I, I get to believe in what we're up to and help see other, others see the promise of it. Um, I don't ever want to work anywhere that's smoke and mirrors again. Fair. All right. What turns you on spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? That's pretty easy for me. It's other people's talents, minds, energy, um, especially when they're centered around a skill I don't have. You mentioned comedians, right? It's why I love directing actors so much or working with musicians because I just inherently don't have that talent and watching people harness it and share it um, in, in the ways they do feels like I'm being let in on a secret or like it's yeah. magic. Um, I'm working right now, quick tangential thing. I'm working right now on a project for a place down in, um, in, uh, Pennsylvania called art yard. That's really special and going to be incredible. It's going to open at the end of June and run through the summer into September, October. And the team creating it is just beyond inspirational for me. And to get to be a part of this project called where there's smoke, which we began at Tribeca years ago, and it's been through online iterations. We ran it during the pandemic and just keeps continuing to grow and become something new. And there's going to be this kind of three month tenure at art yard. And it's going to be, um, it's going to be fascinating to be part of that team is about as, um, spiritual as a science driven person like me, um, ever gets. That's amazing. All right. What about what turns you off spiritually, creatively, emotionally? We talked about this before. It's perfection. 
um, aiming for what's best instead of what's interesting. I, I have the ten, I, I need to push against my tendency to overthink and overcraft things, but it's way more fun and in the long run beneficial to put more imperfect things out in the world and see what happens than it is to try to make fewer things you think are perfect because they won't be anyway. Yeah, I, I mentioned in the book a lot, and it's a thing that I hold very closely to my heart, which is perfection is the enemy of good. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I kind of, I hit that touchstone all the time and I have to remind myself of it all the time. And, and I'm also fair to remind myself. I don't know if you are too, like when I aim for perfection, I'm not perfect. I'm not the most talented. No. So like, what am I trying to go for anyway? Just get it out there. You, you have the ability to keep working on it. Right. Um, so yeah, I had a, I had a yeah, weird sure. moment a long time ago on a golf course where my dad looked at me and he's like, you know, you've never been good at this. Right. So like, why do you get frustrated? <laughs> Like you don't have a, like, you don't have a moment when you were good. Like you've been bad the whole time. So like, and ever since then golf's been a joy. Cause I don't care. I'm like, oh, I'm terrible yeah. at this. I'm never going to be good. Who yeah. cares? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. What about a product or company that you absolutely love? Okay. Without being cute on this one, I'm going to say pen and paper. Those are the two things for me where all storytelling from my point of view begins. It's whether that's writing a play or a novel or an ad or sketching frames for a storyboard or a musician writing lyrics or notes to some new piece of music or a founder finding the best way to convince an audience to support some innovative idea that they have. Um, it's a pen and a paper. That's where it starts, getting your ideas down. I Years ago, I read an interview with um, George Lucas in Wired. Or I should say, I thought I read this in an interview with George Lucas, where they were asking him about that kind of the move into digital filmmaking. And he kind of supposed a question back at the interview. And he said, look, people have been trying to write the great American novel forever. And kind of arguably, nobody ever has. So, you know, back to the point we were talking earlier, nothing's going to really change, right? You know, you can keep doing what you're doing. Nobody's cracked it yet. You you can kind of see that pens and paper have been around for a long time um, and um, you still have a chance to do great things. So it turns out that Lucas didn't actually say that quote when I went back and tried to find it. I, I can't find it. He never said in the article. So I think I've made it up over time. From my <laughs> nice. own but, like, um, but I think it's that idea. You know, uh, nobody's ever written the great American novel yet. So you can kind of get at it yourself. That's great. So here's the one tough one, a product that you wish was better or have strong feelings about, or it could be a company. Um, you can do industry if it's easier. You know, I'm going to bring this back to social media for me because I had strong feelings about the final social media platform that I was on and leaving it. And for the past few years, I was trying to make that place very optimistic and positive for myself and hopefully for other people, but it just became too much of a burden. Um, and the lift to try and create something beneficial to me was just too heavy ultimately. So I left. And the interesting thing to me about leaving wasn't that I left and changed my point of view. It's just that um, each time I've opted out of social media in general that I've found um, I don't miss it, that I quickly don't hate it any longer. Uh, it rapidly loses its place um, in, in my world. And I just kind of don't have feelings about it pretty much any overnight. And my energy shifts with a new focus towards the things that matter to me more, like connecting with other people like you here today, talking to them or writing or reading or focusing my curiosity elsewhere. So that's what I hated for a while. I was hating things like social media and how I was using my time. And I found that I can opt out of it. And that hate literally just goes away. Interesting. All right. And then finally, if you could solve any one problem through technology, what would it be? Um, I think on the grand scale, it would be to tackle inherent bias and the imbalance of privilege for everybody out there to try and use technology to level the playing field for so many brilliant, passionate, incredible, and diverse people um, so that they can bring their best ideas to bear on a far more level playing field. Um, I, I, I'm trying to live by and you know, tell people in my life, myself and my kids, that I want unexpected and weird and strange to win out. Like that fascinates me yeah. way more now. So if technology can help us get to, you know, coming back full circle to what we started talking about, more voices being heard, more people feeling they have the um, platform to share what's inside them with the world, that's incredible. And, and I think it starts with 
I'm, I'm fascinated now more than anything by those people, those diverse audiences being able to see themselves in the people who are talking. So much less of me on stage talking like this and much more of people just being honest with that, you know, getting back to what we were saying earlier, talking about was like, if you want people who are from a diverse background and don't feel like they have a voice to share their voice, they're going to do that far more if somebody who is like them looks like them is from their background tells them that they have the right to stand up than somebody like me telling them to stand up so if technology can help balance that even more and create that level playing field that's not only the future i want then that is the future we need because the imbalance out there is not headed the right direction um and and if we're gonna save this um grand experiment of democracy we're gonna have to uh we're gonna have to fix some things pretty quickly I couldn't agree more. Um, I cannot tell you how much I adore you. I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you agreed to do this. I am so oh, excited you. for the stuff that you guys are doing at Dirt. I can't wait to see how it continues to evolve. And just thank you for, for your time today, man. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.